Welcome to another episode of AUSU Open Mic. AUSU Open Mic is a podcast brought to you by the Athabasca University Students Union. We represent students from coast to coast to coast and all around the world, those undergraduates attending Athabasca University. Holding six world-class university degrees, Dr. Veronica Finn Bruy is a multi-award winning scholar who has researched, taught, consulted, and presented at conferences in over 30 countries. Furthermore, she's a war survivor, an indigenous Liberian migrant herself, and she brings personal experience to her work in post-secondary education. We were lucky enough to have her give us a talk as a part of our celebrations of Black History Month, where she chronicled her academic and research journey as she traversed war, displacement, and global migration to acquire her PhD and become a professor. She takes a look at those experiences and reflects upon her journey as a scholar, and I'm happy to bring it to you now. Enjoy. I'm humble and grateful. Uh, you must understand that when uh, told over and again, over and again, that you will never amount to anything good, that is by your, your best efforts, you will never be good enough, you start to internalize that low self-esteem. Just like the irrationality of racism, it doesn't matter the fact that you are one of the most educated Black Liberian women um, or women. Uh, resilience is in overcoming one adversity over another. You get su sucked into that negative vibe. I'm required to pay the black tax. That is work and achieve 10 times more than white people, yet I will never be rewarded as them. I remember attending an event last year where one of the participants said to me, you're so learned that I'm afraid to even speak to you. I simply told her, I don't care about those stupid acolytes attached to my names because they remind me of the torture, the violence, and the abuse I endure to acquire them. What's most important to me is what do I do with the knowledge I have acquired? Internalize hate and become a vector of, of oppression? or fight against all odds to ensure that another young Liberian African black child continues to be the spoils of war? Well, you bet I will continue to try until I die. Today, I'm home alone with my little one. Hopefully I can get through my presentation without interruptions, but if need be, I'll stop to attend to him and let's be real, this is my life as a Black Liberian academic. For me, motherhood is a platform I use to revolutionize gender equality in and out of the academy. I trotted around the world in 10 countries and four continents since he was only six weeks old as he lashed onto my breast, using my body as a political, personal, legal, and a legal site for gender justice. To make sure I stick to the 30 minutes that is afforded me, I've written down my presentation. Please understand that this is a rare opportunity for me to speak up and speak out as a racialized woman in the academy. As a recipient of six academic degrees, three of which is in law, I'm fully aware of presenting data with hard evidence. Unfortunately, this is not one of those occasions. Today, I'm having a heart-to-heart -heart conversation with a heart-wrenching, emotionally destructive and traumatizing journey that haunts me daily. 
whether you believe it or not, my goal is to make a spiritual connection with each of you listening in hopes that it will stimulate an unflinching desire for racial justice and equality, not just during, during Black History Month, but in your daily existence. So a little bit of a background history. Um, my history starts with one woman, my mother, of course. My mama's story is mine. They are one and the same on many levels. Barely a high school graduate, she became teenage pregnant with her first child. She still managed to obtain her high school diploma while going to night school. After bearing four children, she divorced my father because she could no longer live with the abuse and the infidelity. When I was only six months old, she split up the food money he had given her for uh, by putting 25 cents in a rice bowl and 25 cents in a soup bowl before walking to the Temple of Justice to file for divorce. <laughs> She never looked back. By the time the civil war started in Liberia, Mama had two failed marriages and was a single mother of eight children. Despite her challenges, you must understand that I was raised by a feisty, no-nonsense mother. Her command to us children was, I'm not your friend, <laughs> I'm your mother. But as long as you're under my roof, you do what I say because there's only one adult in this house and that's me. I didn't realize Mama was a feminist, especially when she didn't distinguish chores for me and my brothers. He, we rotated our house duties irrespective of our sex. Mama valued education as she always said, if I must eat sand to educate you, then I will because I want you to get the education that I didn't have. Of course, Miss Smarty Pants, that's me, got away with doing the house shows because I always had homework to do. That was the only reason you could ever get excused from doing your assigned duties. Growing up, we lived in a broken dirt floor mud house where the wood was infested with termites and I slept on a wooden board placed over uh, an, a very old squeaky metal bunk bed framed uh, because Mama just could not afford to buy a mattress. Despite her challenges, Mama was a proud, hardworking, strong, and very clean person. She woke me up at 2 a.m. every morning to make bread. There was no instant yeast at the time, so we would go back to bed and wake up at 4 a.m. again to bake the bread to make sardine sandwiches. By 5.30 a.m., we were all ready to walk for miles to school. It was my job to sell the sandwiches and pastries during recess or break time. She said I was <laughs> lucky and honest. <laughs> my brothers would not report the exact money given to them. See, as her first girl, Mama expected a lot from me. Even though I started helping her raise my siblings at the tender age of seven, she always told me, don't ever end up like me. I certainly did not disappoint her. So when... She asked me when I was going to get married and have children a few years ago. I said, you had all my children, mama. You bet that didn't go down well with her. She always called me okra moth. I don't know whether you know okra, this slimy um, vegetable. Because since I started talking, I never ceased attempting to outsmart my mama. 
Mama said not to end up like her, but I'm the exact replica of my mother, except that I didn't become teenage pregnant or married twice. I listened to her and I buried my head in the books religiously. I avoided boys at all costs because I hated my absentee father. The war, refugee, refugeehood, and coming to Canada. So this is a glimpse of my life, of, my, of our lives before the Liberian Civil War started in December 1989. Sadly, during the war, when we were internally displaced, Mama contracted tuberculosis. My two big brothers were separated from us, and so I became the caregiver for Mama and my five younger siblings. Now it is not the time to recount nearly three years of mayhem and violence, which, uh, we, which violence we experienced, but to say that we were the lucky few to survive the war and flee to Ghana for refuge. In July 1992, we arrived in Ghana as refugees after living on the deck, after laying on the deck of a Ghanaian peacekeeping vessel for three days without food and water. Interestingly, upon arriving in Ghana, we were told by the Tema Harbor Port Authority that we could not disembark because the UNACR, the United Nations High Commission for Refugee Officials, had closed for the day. The irony of being a humanitarian worker, huh? That you can close for the day while people are come on a ship for three days, no food, no water, and you are closed for the day. For nine years, Ghana was a place of refuge, providing both secondary and university education for me. But Ghana was also a place of sexual and physical violence and abuse, and worst of all, a place where I separated from my mom and my siblings. Life was so hard in Ghana that mama said, I'd rather return to Liberia to die than to be buried in a mass grave where I wouldn't be remembered. More than 13 years elapsed before I saw my mama again. I'm glad to report that mama is still alive and well in Liberia. She refused to live in the United States, although seven of her children and 13 grandchildren currently lived in the United States. So much for the anti-migrant racists who think that every African wants to live in the U.S. Well, not my mama, please. She does not want to live in the U.S. My access to post-secondary education in Ghana made me eligible for the World University Service of Canada Refugee Sponsorship Program. With a Bachelor of Science in Zoology and Biochemistry and a TOEFL School Test of English as a Foreign Language, score of 690, UBC chose me, University of British Columbia chose me because Canada loves smart Africans. On 22nd August 2001, I arrived in Canada with US dollar 20, with 20 US dollars and two suitcases as a refugee sponsored student to begin a second bachelor degree at UBC. Shout out to UBC students who donated $1 to ensure that my tuition was paid for up to 5 years and living expenses covered for 1 year. We were selected partly because the government of Canada does not want us to be a liability in the long term. At the same token, we are expected to, to be like any other Canadian after one year. Wow. A newly arrived traumatized refugee is instantly equivalent to any Canadian, including those with multiple ancestral generations. 
I give a big uh, well, uh, shout out to Professor Glenn Peterson, to Andrea Wenham, and all those at Woolsey UBC who made uh, sure we were okay when I arrived. In addition to all the racism associated with being uh, the refugee student at UBC, I was, me and Kade were the refugee students. Some would say, if you don't like it, yeah, go back to where you came from. No, I ain't. But I also know that you're going to feel even more threatened when I take the same opportunity you have to exceed your expectation to help change your warped idea about Black Africans. At UBC, I chose to do psychology to help me deal with my childhood and, and war trauma I have been carrying for years. But I will soon find out that my experience as a Black African librarian did not form part of my psychology classes. I was one of two persons of color to graduate from the psychology program in 2004. The other person was an Algerian. I think she was an Algerian or a Tunisian. In spite of the visible absence of Africa at UBC, the Gold Global Program was sending young white students to Africa with some returning as experts after a semester or so. When I retired to my residence at the end of the day, the only time I saw Black people on the TV, they were emaciated, malnourished children, used as fundraiser bits or on the news as criminals. Africa awareness and, and resisting institutional and individual racism. Well, I, I did two things to respond to this kind of negative image of Africa at UBC and in Vancouver. One, I stopped watching TV to this day. We don't own TV. And two, barely a year after my arrival at UBC, I started Africa Awareness. Africa Awareness still exists today, but then it was a purposeful faculty-related student-driven initiative responsible for the implementation of the first and only African studies program at UBC today. Please give me a moment to appreciate many who sacrificed before me and those whose shoulders I stood on uh, in order to institutionalize African studies at the University of British Columbia. Today, I thank Dr. Yvonne Brown, because I did invite her to come. I call her Mother Courage. She might be on the call. Um, and in the absence of my mother, she, along with Shirin Theophilus, Professor Gloria Onyaziri uh, Miller, and Professor Kara Christensen, have been nurturing me since 2001 when I arrived in Canada. After UBC, I left for the University of Nottingham and returned to Canada. I left, then left again to Geneva to work as a young Canadian professional. It was in Geneva that my interest in law school heightened. I couldn't understand why so many white men with no experience of what it means to be a refugee worked at the United Nations High Commission for Refugee. But I was told I needed a law degree to do the same. Well, I returned to Canada in 2007 with three degrees already and an international experience but also became homeless and unemployed for months. 
I literally frauded employment insurance because I didn't tell them I had a job for a month. Um, long story, but I, I had to pay them back. And that w- that job was terminated six weeks after because I did not agree with the terms in the contract. I was humiliated by a fragile white woman as if I were a criminal. A criminal. A month later, I got hired by the BC government. Yes, a decent job. I felt it was a breakthrough, but very short-lived. I soon realized that BC government is like white people family plantation. It seems only family members are hired to ensure the bloodline of the business continues. My boss did everything she could to terminate my employment a day before my probation period ended. She paid for my flight from Penticton, where I was taking a break, to Victoria so that she can hand deliver the termination letter. Wow, the unimaginative weakness of fragile white women. The experience stung, but not to the point that I was leaving for the top law school in Canada after weeks. In August 2008, I arrived at Osgood Hall Law School to do my LLM with full scholarship. I was one of four to complete in 12 months. I was admitted into the PhD program with full funding for five years. By the end of my first year, I had completed my courses with A's except for one B plus in reproductive health law. I had also conducted preliminary research findings in Liberia and South Africa. And now I was at Georgetown University Center in Washington, DC as a visiting research scholar I thought I've gotten over this and I wasn't going to cry. But that's how trauma works. I think I've gotten over it, but sometimes the trigger is there and it's very painful. And now I was at Georgetown University Law Center in Washington, D.C. as a visiting scholar from September to December of 2010, living off my scholarship money. On my PhD supervisory committee were two white women and one black woman. On 29th October, 2010, while standing in the lobby of Georgetown Law School, I received an email from the program director stating that I was not cut out for academia and that I should be better off working for a human rights NGO. I was given one week to voluntarily withdraw from the program or a threat of imposed expulsion. I've never cried so much in my life. I'm just always amazed the lack of humanity associated with racist racist behavior by white people, especially white women in in the academy. But moving forward, it took me three years to find another PhD program at the Australian National University vowing to never work with a white supervisor ever, especially white women. It took 10 years to confront at Osgood Hall. And this quotation in the bottom of my email signature by Najol Sabian, a Lebanese Canadian, reflects how I feel now. Today, I have decided to forgive you, not because you apologized or because you acknowledged the pain that she calls me, but because my soul deserves rest and peace. 
this is just one of my many experiences I'm still encountering in the academy. I'm exhausted and the trauma associated with ongoing racism and discrimination is raw. At the end of the day, what is important to remember is the indelibility of intergenerational trauma and its potent ability to self-destruct, especially now that I am a mother. I think of the impact of my young the impact on my young son every single day as I work even harder. <laughs> Not to be hateful, angry, or repeat similar patterns of behavior consciously or unconsciously. One way I build my resilience and perseverance is to write. I like I would like to read uh, some of my poems depending on the time that I have left. So I have about four minutes. So I read one of my, I write a lot of poems, but I read this one uh, called Black in Beaumont, Spring 2023. And the context is uh, a landscaper working out of uh, our house here in Beaumont. We just moved here in 2022. Oh, I'm sorry, for what? When I saw you moving the garbage cans, I thought to myself, what is she doing here? Burst out with laughter. What did you think? I thought you were some kind of stranger trespassing. I wanted to say, get off the property. But I kept staring at you. Well, I noticed the staring, but I'm not going to, to know what is in your head. Burst out with laughter again. I guess you were wondering what this black woman is doing out here. There are no, I see Aiden. There, are, there, there is no way she could be married to him. Huh? The other white guy you said? Did you hear what he said? I exclaimed. Yeah, I did with a grin. I told him you lived here. You live here. I bursted again laughing so hilariously. Well, because you were wearing a green top, I actually thought you were working with us, the landscaping company. You must have come to scold us for not doing our job right. I burst out again with, with laughter. So amusing. I'm so sorry. I feel bad, the young chap said. Oh, really? Please don't apologize. I didn't know you were thinking that I don't live in my own house. I saw you looking at me in a strange way. But I get that I get that looking I get that look at it uh, all the time. Well, I'm Douglas's wife. Yeah, so you are the boss of the house. Yes, you see my T-shirt. It reads, "The future is feminist." Mmm, a pause. I'm glad to be back in Canada, though. I keep thinking I could have been shot in my own yard in a so-called civilized world where guns are used to eliminate black race and purify the white genes, even though homo sapiens are all one race. Hey boss, ready to go for lunch? Douglas is calling me out later after I told him this story. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my experience. Uh, it's complex, it's a lot, and I can't do that in 20 minutes, but I'm very grateful for you to give me this platform to share my story and thank you.
Uh, next, we're going to be joined by Dr. Chika C. Daniels. Uh, she is an architectural design and experience researcher, educator, entrepreneur, and community advocate. And she teaches at two of Canada's most respected institutions, the University of Calgary and Athabasca University. She is driven by a hunger to bring palpable change to her media and larger community towards making a global impact. Her presentation highlighted the importance of commemorating Black History Month within post-secondary education. Hi, everyone. Um, first of all, let me apologize. I really sound very deep. <laughs> um, I, I have a cold, so I apologize. Um, I do hope you can hear me quite clearly. I will do my best. Um, Dr. Brewey, thank you for that presentation. It was really powerful and um, very um, illuminating. So I, I appreciate you. And I'm just so glad that we're able to share the stage here at this um, fantastic event. Um, I know I have a presentation to give, but I'd like to just start off um, responding a little bit more to Shelley's question. And I think it's a brilliant question, Shelley, and other questions too as well. But um, that is a good segue into what I'll be talking about in a few minutes. Um, so I, I do find, and I don't know that this is just my personal experience, but with many Black women who are, who um get more and more educated, more and more exposed, we find that the hurdles do get higher, you know, much higher, there's much more resistance. And I mean, there's many reasons. One of them is people, you know, being, I don't want to use the word offended, but for lack of a better word, you know, being offended that, you know, people who belong to the most racialized, you know, group of people on the planet, are, are succeeding or are thriving, you know, despite all these odds. I personally have been disqualified from opportunities because people have wondered why I'm able to do all these different things at any one time. And, you know, so I'm constantly having to, you know, I don't want to say dial down some of my accomplishments, but maybe not quite so much speak about them with the kind of confidence that one should with what they've accomplished. Um, so yeah, I, I find, and I, I just even had conversation with another lady in Calgary here who is president of an, a, a leading institution who literally just faced the exact same thing, you know? So, um, and I'll talk about this more as we kind of advance this evening, but we're finding that this quest for, you know, diversity and, and wanting to bring in all these different ethnicities is really so much more face value than actually wanting to pull knowledge and information from that individual. You know, so um, I feel like we've gotten to a stage with DEI and all things DEI that is no longer, you know, delivering the expectation, you know, that we've quite attached to it. So um, <clears throat> on that note, I want to say good evening to everyone. And um, thank you all for joining. I know there's many other things that you can be doing, but you know, you're taking time out to come and listen to Dr. Brewery and myself. And so we, we're really quite grateful. Um, I also want to thank the team, Jody, Natalia. I know I don't know if Chantel is here, but you know, you guys, you know, were able to kind of put this together. And I just want to thank everyone else who I don't quite know, but who is part of, you know, convening this event. Um, I mean, I'm passionate about knowledge. So anything that kind of fuels that definitely has my take, you know, um, of approval. <clears throat> I'm excited tonight to be part of AU's BHM commemoration. Um, 
And I think it's important that Dr. Brewery kind of approach this from an experiential lens, because I won't be doing that. You know, I think that many times, and, and it's so important to, you know, be vulnerable and show emotion about, you know, how the struggles that we constantly face on a daily basis, you know, whether or not, you know, we're, 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 we're doing well or, you know, or, or not, you know, but um, now that she's been able to take that lens, it does make me more comfortable, you know, taking a more research-based, you know, um, lens to uh, my conversation or my discussion tonight. Um, so we do belong to the most racialized group in, on the planet. I mean, we, we are Black and we're also women. I, I don't know any other group that has it quite as bad, you know, so, you know, and so the opportunity to speak is usually taken away from us, despite being qualified and not just academically, but, you know, experientially, professionally, we're always struggling to be in positions where, you know, we are, we are, we People are, people know that we'll probably do the best jobs. Um, so once again, thank you to um, the student union for the platform. Um, yeah, I want to start by really kind of discussing what BHM, Black History Month is about. I, I know that we all have some kind of idea, but like, I feel like at any event about BHM, we, we really owe it to, we really need to start off really explaining the concept so that people understand why it's such a necessary, you know, part of everyone's life and not just black people. Um, so Black History Month is really a celebration of the achievements and contributions of not, not only black Canadians, but also persons of, you know, black race, Caribbean, African heritage. So that entire bandwidth of people are, are who we should be considering, you know, who should we be thinking about during Black History Month. So it's a time where we're kind of spreading awareness and we're, you know, advocating, you know, education and learning more, you know, while we continue to support the Black community's histories, traditions, culture, you know. So this month is really a time for us to imagine and walk towards a future free of racism and discrimination. You know, so Black history should be celebrated all the time, really. So not just in February, right? You know, and it should be integrated into society's fabric. You know, and I do want to acknowledge that all other ethnicities are critical, but I want to be a bit, you know, uh, biased. This is Black History Month, yeah, you know, so I'll, I'll, I'll keep my focus on that. So, and I think that is even much more important now because we're in a context that isn't, you know, predominantly Black. You know, so we we, we definitely need to you know, spotlight it and really go hard, you know, in, in Black History Month, really centralizing and centering, you know, all things Black. Um, so I don't know if you guys know this, but Canada de officially declared February Black History Month as far back as 1996. You know, it was a commitment to really just continue celebrating Black Canadians, you know, recognizing their significant contributions to society, and create opportunities for learning and unlearning also about the Black experiences and contributions to Canada. And the entire premise of Black History Month is founded on teaching students and young people about the Black community's contributions and the opportunity to, opportunity to reimagine what possibilities lie ahead for Black people. You know, and, and this is because in schools, you know, what's obtained previously was a focus on the history of heroes 
who aren't Black, even though no society is built solely by its original citizenry, right? So such stories had been largely, you know, diluted, you know, or forgotten and uh, or even neglected. And we found that many times Black people are exempt from the national narrative. And, and this has only done us a, a dishonor, right? So because we're, we're here just thinking that, you know, oh my God, Canada is really built on the back of Black people. But that isn't quite what it is. There's a good you know, um, breath, a, a good group of, of Black community that played a pivotal role in Canada's economy and what it's become, you know? And I, I mean, I, 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 I want to mention Alberta specifically, but across the nation, you know, that there's a good history about that. So the importance of Black culture really lies in its significant contributions to the world in various realms. But I mean, notably, when we think of Black people, we think of resilience, you know, we think of empowerment, we think of them as people who, you know, despite all the negativity and struggles that, you know, that, 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 that surrounds them, surrounded them, surrounds them even presently, they're able to kind of break through and still really succeed, you know, so... So I guess by now, just by listening to all the things I've said, I've said, you would know that, you know, so my fundamental rationale, you know, the fundamental rationale, you know, that I think, oh, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm certain that, you know, um, we should, we should institute, you know, BHM in PSIs, post-secondary institutions, is to educate, you know, education is so critical to change many things. You know, we can't overemphasize the role that it would play in helping us to achieve or, you know, arrive at a society where there's equity, you know, and and and, and there's a balance, you know, gender-wise, you know, race-wise, and, and all these other different, you know, um, uh, um, uh, criteria. Um, so, I mean, this is the same reason why I think that you know, besides the celebrations that go on, you know, in the community every February where, you know, there's events, you know, scattered across the city on, on Black History Month, PSIs also owe it to themselves, to the institution, to the students, faculty, staff, and to the future of that society to, to ensure that they also spotlight Black History Month within the community of what that institution is. One foundational duty of universities is to create the right atmosphere for dissemination of knowledge. You know, as, as all students, I mean, aren't en enrolled in a history-rated program, this PSI is owed to students, to society, to ensure that students and all the people who are on these campuses are transitioning from the university environment to society with the knowledge they need to be champions of diversity. Um, University needs to provide a safe space to allow people ask any questions in their quest for enlightenment. You know, it should be a space for engaging, for learning, for learning, and honest inquisition. You know, I've, I've had students ask me all kinds of questions that one would consider, you know, um, you know um, uh, um, disrespectful or, or invasive. But, but that's what institutions are for, where people are free to really inquire. 
and just so that they know how to, you know, address, you know, topics that typically are, are, are able to cause division. So the university needs to allow people to, to allow to ensure that there's a safe space for people to really converse about race-related issues. And one of these, as we're looking at today, is Black history. So, I mean, this leads me very nicely into my next point, you know, where um, PSIS needs to also commemorate Black history so that it can create in its community, specifically, I think, within the student population, the authentic culture of inclusion of acceptance and acknowledgement. You know, I'm, I'm yet to identify or even be informed of an easier route to foster inclusion, acceptance and acknowledgement of other races than of course to educate. Um, but, but more so than just educate, we also need to utilize the university environment, which typically boasts a full spectrum of differentiation. You know, like if you, if you go to any campus now, there's so many different ethnocultural, you know, um, uh, uh, members of that community that it's really a fantastic environment to begin to teach people about being able to include others, to accept others, to acknowledge all these different races. You know, I, I believe sometime in 2020, um, the UBC and also Columbia University published articles that alluded to the suitability of tertiary institutions or PSI classrooms to develop the respect, the thoughtfulness and inclusivity in the individual in preparation for an extremely blended society like ours. You know, so, and, and, if, you, and if you even, I think there was even more research and I think this was mentioned or was conducted by Simon Fraser University, you know, where it mentioned that you know, teaching inclusivity in a classroom where there's a diverse occupancy is key to promoting diversity and inclusivity in a rapidly changing world as well. So as, as instructors who are privileged to teach in classrooms where there is a fantastic mix and blend of, of, of backgrounds, you know, we, we owe it to the students to as much as possible you know, ensure that we're inculcating a a a a, a personality, a, a personality, or or the, the need for them to 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 be very open and accommodating for others. I mean, if you look at the society we live in now in Canada, Statistics Canada published a, a report at the end of last year where they were speaking about you know how Canada is almost forty percent ethnocultural at this point. You know, and over the next several years, 62 people that come into the 62 people will come into Canada and 50% would be from a different race than is Caucasian. And so whether we like it or not, we do need to use these platforms where we can address the largest number of people to begin to expose them to what their life would be like you know, where our society is very well blended. So, I mean, if, if you just think about that, we're living in a city that is very rapidly headed towards such diversity that to live in it successfully, one needs to develop an authentic culture of inclusion, acceptance, and acknowledgement. You know, there are very few times now when you walk into an organization 
and you don't want to work with them because you don't find anyone that looks like yourself there. You know, we're, 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 we've come to a time where people are able to make those choices, you know, and say, I don't want to work with this law firm or this organization or this business because there's only one race here, you know? So how do I know that they can address my own needs when I can't see anyone who has had my experiences? You know, so like we definitely need to prepare, you know, our community as early on as possible. And the reason why I, I kind of, I want to say anchored these, this um, presentation on PSIs is because our research shows us that that's the most formative period for, for an individual before they are allowed into a non-controlled environment. So it is in that few years, four to how many years of, 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 of being in that community that a person is really able to form or to carve out or create the kind of person they're going to be when they are admitted into society. So the PSIs really have a huge task of ensuring that they are really advocating and driving, you know, the celebration or commemoration of the diversity in our society within these communities as much as possible. Um, yeah, so, so the, I mean, the university environment has been designed. Um, I have a short note here that I want to read. So we're living in a city that is very rapidly headed towards such diversity that to live in it successfully, one needs to really develop an authentic culture of inclusion, acceptance, and acknowledgement. And this is something that the university environment has been designed that and is extremely capable of, of indoctrinating in the individual. I do also want to state categorically that PSIs do not have a monopoly on educating about Black history or even creating or instilling or, you know, the culture of inclusivity or acceptance, but they are definitely a good place to start to foster these, these traits in a person. They've they, they been found to be a good person. I'm not just speaking, you know, based on my own experience, but based on research work that has been conducted, you know, across several PSIs. Um, so this leads me nicely into what I think is my final point. And, you know, in the last several decades, you know, where DEI has taken center stage, there are still a resounding number of cases where there is, where this is occurring solely just to check boxes off and to take any facade, you know, of, of rightness, of being correct, you know, within the space. And the result of this is that organizations, you know, including PSIs are making their diversity quota and that's all. So even when they're, they're hiring based on that DEI, you know, um, requirement, they are, they are hiring, you know, blacks and putting them in roles that aren't front facing or roles that don't really allow them to, you know, um, take authority or take leadership or be able to really speak to the things that also educate. I don't know that a black person can speak about black history as much as, 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 as we can, you know, so providing blacks positions within, you know, PSIs, tertiary institutions, allows them to really speak about black history and things that are black community related, you know, at the at the best, you know, uh, at, at the, the most the most rigorous and the most robust levels. 
Um, so, I mean, the result of this is that, you know, although PSIs are making diversity quota, they, they are hiding these diverse hires in roles that they aren't impactful in. And so what PSI should be doing is really a more intentional recruitment of Blacks into leadership roles, into faculty positions, which really help to create the ingrained experience to this community, you know, that Blacks can lead, you know, Blacks are smart enough, you know, Blacks are able to, you know, um, to, to, to be examples to even people outside of our race, you know, so like it's necessary, you know, so that there needs to be an intentional recruitment. Um, so, I mean, if you look at the research from Ryerson University and University of Toronto, I think this was um, either between 2019 or 2021, there was research that shows, you know, that even up till now, there's a huge anti-Blackness that is flourishing on campuses or in institutions, you know, that we should really be working against. You know, so we're seeing, you know, young males, again, wrongly targeted, you know, as criminals or as being perpetrators, perpetrators of negativity, or we're seeing women being, you know, harassed because of the way their hair is and being spoken to as, you know, unprofessional, you know, oh, go straighten your hair, your hair doesn't look a kind of way. But we're damaging the platform we have to start from this very young age and begin to create the people we need to move our society forward. So there's, I mean, universities can lift up black communities. You know, they have a very huge opportunity here to lift up blacks, you know, by putting them in faculty positions, making them staff that hold leadership positions, or even allowing black students to lead certain associations. What has often obtained is that you find that blacks are, black students are invited to head international, you know, committees for students. And we need to break away from that because we're saying that the only thing we can do is speak to blackness. And that's not, that, that's not accurate. You know, so what's wrong with a black person being student union president or student union vice president versus them being, you know, the, 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 the chair on international students? You know, we, we need to break away from those things. So there's a huge task really on PSIs, you know. So, yeah, and, and, and what we will find, should we begin to take this other route, is that we're taking institutions away from being very Eurocentric, you know, for people to see that universities really do need everyone. And, and, and if you look at our society, what we're seeing is that organizations are now identifying that there are certain races that often bring a certain skill sets. And this is what we want institutions to also show, PSIs to also show that, you know, everyone who is invited to study here, you know, is able to provide or produce at the exact same level with anyone else. There isn't one race that is more intelligent than the other. There isn't another race that has a higher chance to succeed than the other. You know, so we need to eat, level out that playing field at these levels. And this, this is where we're hoping that PSIs can really play a, a very, you know, critical role. So I think the necessity of change in addressing, you know, representation is, 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 is critical in instilling the importance 
of intentionality around representation in PSCs, in PSIs, at multiple levels. And what the result of this is that we find that people are now celebrating diversity versus, you know, being, you know, um, considering it as a more competitive, you know, you know, space where, you know, you know, that the, 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 there's fear that, you know, are, are they just bringing in black people because they, they want to show themselves to be, you know, uh, a DEI compliant institution versus are they actually good at what they're doing? So um, I think this is where I really kind of want to, you know, um, end my, my own session and uh, just um, to kind of recap. So uh, um, tonight, I just wanted to speak more about how PSIs really owe it to our society to commemorate celebrations of diversity much more than they're currently doing. And, and, and one way for sure is to educate. And the second way is to use that platform as, as one that begins to instill in the youth that culture of authentic reception or acceptance of, of Blacks and other ethnicities. And finally, you know, be able to really champion representation, you know, in, in those institutions that are visible, visible opportunities for the Black community in leadership roles as faculty and not just as, you know, you know, hidden staff where they're cleaning or they're taking care of security or things like that. So we need to be very intentional, you know, about what PSIs are doing as we commemorate um, event um, seasons like this so yeah thank you for, for, for listening <laughs>